Welcome to the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon, your host here as we broadcast from Des Moines, Iowa, the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. I'd like to do a quick shout out to a couple of our local business partners. Thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe. That's my grocery store. And they serve breakfast, lunch, and supper seven days a week. The dining room, of course, is not open these days, but they do takeout. And you can always just give them a call, tell them what you want, and uh, run down and pick it up, or they will deliver. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Thanks also to Noche Jazz and Cabaret. That's Des Moines' premier location for jazz and cabaret. And they've just started doing some very appropriately socially distanced uh, concerts in-house. You can always, of course, continue to catch their performances on live stream. That's Noche Jazz and Cabaret. All right, folks, welcome to the program today. And later in the show, we're going to be uh, talking with Tamara Harrison about the uh, move to create state, you know, a statehood for D.C. I might also want to ask her what she thinks about the effort to uh, rename the Washington Redskins. Long overdue on that as well. We'll also talk about um, <laughs> some of the crazy stuff happening relevant to fossil fuel infrastructure this past week and why it is still a major concern and what some of the executives of those companies have been doing uh, with your taxpayer money. We'll also talk with Kathy Burns later in the program about uh, summer gardening and answer some of your questions regarding problems past the harvest, that sort of thing. This first segment of the program, we want to welcome Carol Laresh to the uh, show. Uh, she lives in Sheridan, Wyoming, where there has been a pretty impressive effort to create an edible urban forest. Carol, welcome to the program. Thank you, Ed. So, you know, a lot of folks, when they think of urban agriculture, they think of community gardens, but it looks like edible urban forests are a going interest as well. Yes, it, um, it's kind of an extension of community gardens. It's, it's trying to really focus on perennial foods, fruits, and perennial vegetables instead of an annual attempt to grow things. And you started this project back in 2016, I believe, correct? Yes, we did. Yeah. Okay. And it's not just trees. My, my impression from what I've learned of the, of the project, uh, it's not just a forest. It's a forest plus a whole bunch of more typical vegetables that people can just come and harvest, correct? That is true. We have uh, the trees, as you would expect, fruit trees, apples, pears, apricots, and plums. Um, we have those. We also have the berry bushes, strawberries, raspberries, etc., and gooseberries. Um, so that that are there for picking. We also have perennial vegetables, which are like the Jerusalem artichokes and asparagus that that grow there. So uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think most people know what to do with asparagus, but you might have some uh, some scratching of heads when it comes to uh, Jerusalem artichokes. Well, they're just the root of a sunflower, essentially, right. and you use it as a, a kind of a root vegetable. Yeah, I'm, I'm familiar with it. Now, one problem with a root vegetable, of course, especially if it's perennial, is you, have, you run the risk of uh, having it all harvested and not having any of the following year. Has that ever been a problem? You know, that hasn't been a problem for us yet. I, pe I think that some um, that in particular is an unusual thing for people to get excited about. <laughs> but there are voles and things that really like the roots. So, so if we don't have a human consumption, we do have uh, animal consumption of the roots. Uh, the, the vole <laughs> problem. I had a vole problem once myself. It's no fun. Uh, no. So, yeah, so... Uh, um, you, 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 speaking of voles, that's a, a pest. You've got um, 
typically there are plenty of other things that want to eat your garden, whether they be insects, uh, mammals, birds, uh, blights and funguses. Uh, right. what, do you, what do you do to manage problems like that? Well, for the most part, the pests uh, will be, um, well, well, first I, I must say that we are organic and we no, use no pesticides or herbicides. So if we have an infestation, if there is some biocontrol that we can use, we will do that. If not, then we lose what we have. We have not yet experienced that. Um, so um, as you can see, we're not going to really, we're going to have a, we have a, a multiple diverse culture. So birds are in there all the time and other things that use these, these creatures to eat, to eat the insects anyway. And so we haven't had a real infestation where we would, uh, where we lost anything, yeah. that there was a substantial loss. So the Japanese beetles haven't visited and just decimated the entire fruit grove? No, no, they haven't. Not right. yet. <laughs> Not yet. Knock on wood. Yeah. yeah so exactly. uh, again, beyond just pest management, you've got a lot of work on your hands here planting. I mean, especially if you're doing not just trees that are perennial or, or crops like Jerusalem artichokes, uh, asparagus, other perennial vegetables. I mean, it sounds like you're also planting annuals, potatoes, uh, other crops that people can come in and, and harvest each year. There's a lot of work involved in that. Uh, how hard is it to maintain a core of volunteers and appropriate, maybe appropriate staff management? Uh, I, I mean, I'm guessing maybe there's somebody at the city level who's the point person for this. That's a lot of work, a lot of commitment. How, how hard has it been to sustain that? Well, we, we are an all, we're an all-volunteer organization. There's a committee, we call it the Food Forest Committee. There are, there are um, like maybe 20 or so people that are reached each time that we schedule work days. Because we do, we have um, a schedule of things that we do each year and we post that on our Facebook and then we send out emails to the, the members that might come in and help. We are located in a in a, a city park, so the city provides us a certain amount of, of assistance, and one of that is water. They provide us water, ah. and they uh, mow the outside area. And we're a, responsible for anything with within that area. And how big so of this, an, how big of an area are we talking about? It's a it's less than an acre. Less than an acre. Okay. So yeah, uh, how, acre. how many trees are you looking at all together? Oh, we have about 30 trees okay. uh, that are fruit trees. Okay, and then the vegetables as you can fit them in. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and the bushes and things like that. And we also, it's not only the food that we uh, focus on, we also focus on uh, pollination. And right. we have a pollinator garden that was set up to uh, draw in bees and other sorts of pollinators. And we also do a pollinator census every month during the summer the growing months so we pay attention to our um, the pollination of the fruit and uh, we count them and see how they're doing and then we make adjustments if we notice a decrease in in uh, pollinators and we have done that we have noted we noticed a decrease um, in pollinators so we planted an early blooming um, a garden 
right. Now that's, like, um, that, that takes a lot of uh, not just commitment, but expertise. I'm, I'm a beekeeper, so I'm, I'm always impressed with folks who are doing their part to increase a pollinator habitat. So that's, uh, that's very good. But now I, I know this, um, there's always, I mean, we've seen pushback here in central Iowa over, for example, being allowed to plant vegetables or other perennial crops on parking strips, a little strip of grass between your sidewalk and the street. That mm -hmm. was a big fight. Now we can do that. We can plant anything we want there within certain height restrictions. There's also been battles uh, here within the Des Moines metro over chickens. In Des Moines, we're allowed to have up to 30 chickens, but some of the suburbs don't allow any. And they come up with crazy reasons as to why chickens are a problem. But I've noticed that, too, there's also some pushback against uh, urban forests. There was a, a situation in Toronto, apparently, a few years back, where there were public concerns over the forest attracting bees, which I think is funny. Um, they were also concerned mm. about um, fruit that would fall and rot and create a big mess. And, and they also were concerned about the, you know, the park space being turned over to a forest um, that uh, they, they, some people thought should just be purely recreational for every possible use. And, uh, and that, um, that pushback ended up um, impacting the size of the forest. They, they dropped it from a planned 40 trees to only 14. So have you had any kinds of, um, any of those problems in Sheridan? You know, we really haven't. When we, uh, when we started out to ask our, our park district and our city um, administration for, the, for use of this little, uh, this little piece of, of land um, that used to be, by the way, a BMX park uh -huh. for, um, for recreational purposes. So the BMX riders weren't mad at you? Well, they, I, I think that it had something to do with the Corps of Engineers thinking that it was interfering with the flood control in that, uh, in that area. Okay. So that they, de they, they had to uh, reuse whatever it was and they were looking for a use. And we came in with this idea and they, and they essentially made it work. They, uh, the park district was very helpful. They really liked the idea, and we succeeded in getting use of this land in a very short period of time. So we've not had any problem yeah. uh, with yeah. it. The only problem that we did have at first was because the ground needed a lot of work because it was very compressed. We had a lot of, of um, wild things growing in that area for a while to break up the soil, and it became very weedy. Um, and that was uh, it was kind of unsightly for a little while, but that was only a couple of yeah. years. So they, we did have some comment from the locals, right. but they, yeah. but nobody really wanted us to be uh, pushed off or. Um, to change the the focus of that piece of so, that little piece of dirt. So, if you've been established since 2016, your, yes. some of your trees, I'm guessing, are just beginning to come into their own in terms of production. I mean, it takes apples, that, pears, peaches, uh, several years to get a, a good a good crop. Have you done any um, any assessment as to how much food you've been able to produce each year? You know, we haven't done that yet, and. Um, I, I never even thought of doing that, but that's a good idea. Well, thank you. Really pay attention to how much we get. <laughs> Happy to help. <laughs> so, <laughs> thank you. And I imagine, I imagine it's only going to get... be able to say yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, hey, another one other question. So, again, yeah, yeah, I mean, presumably there's a lot of people who are interested in coming to harvest what grows there, but 
Do you, have, do you ever have the problem where a whole bunch of food, whether it's vegetables or the, or the fruit from the trees, goes to waste? Uh, no, we haven't had that yet. Good. Flip side, yeah. do you ever have a problem where people might come in and just uh, make off with as much as they want uh, without even considering what might be a fair portion for them to take? Not that we're aware of, but that, that our place does not have someone there all the time. We have certain days that we show up and do all of the work, and the rest of the time is open, and people can come in and harvest as they wish. So we don't, I, I, if somebody came in and denuded all of the trees, I don't know whether that would have been one person or ten. Yeah, I mean, it's pot, I mean I'm just thinking of the worst, pot, worst case scenario. It's, yeah. um, that somebody might say, hey, this is a great economic opportunity. I haven't had to do any of the work to plant or maintain or water or weed these trees or this veg or these vegetables I'm just going to go in and harvest it all and then sell it yeah that that they could do that at this point in time okay <laughs> because we have not we have not uh, restricted um, access at all okay yeah and, and I, I'm not sure that's a problem I may just be making that up but uh, it struck me as one concern that people might have so you know the other the other issue here is uh, Food security is becoming a higher and higher priority for more and more people as we move deeper into the into the climate crisis, and uh, you know I mean that's been a conversation here in Des Moines too. Is what we, what can we do to create more spaces where food production is happening naturally? And uh, you know with with the success of what you've got going there, is there any possibility of it expanding beyond an acre? Well, what we uh, have talked about, the, the, the Food Forest Committee has talked about within ourselves, is if when we show that this is a success and that people are using it and you can use it for food, a very a good local food that's uh, non-pesticide, non no herbicides, then, then maybe from the parks throughout Sheridan, which is a 17,000-person um, uh, city, we have lots of little parks down through the through the city that perhaps one of these could be put in each of those parks. So that's that's what we thought about adding more public space for public food. So uh, and we hope that when they see that this is a success, that that might be possible. So instead of a one bigger forest, lots of small forests in neighborhoods around the city where they're more accessible to more people. Exactly. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, folks, we've been talking with Carol Laresh. She's of, uh, she's uh, the um, I think the main initiator behind the uh, Sheridan, Wyoming edible forest. You sounds like you've got a great committee of uh, of active people and volunteers, and uh, I'd be fascinating to hear more about uh, how this pro how this um, this uh, project continues to grow. No pun intended. Uh, and I, I do notice that we have more and more urban urban forests springing up around the country. I guess the first was in Asheville, North Carolina, back in 1997. So uh, that's been going for a while. But again, I, I really encourage uh, encourage people to check out uh, what Carol and folks have been doing. There is a Facebook page, I believe. Yes, there is. Okay, and this is called the Sheridan, Wyoming, or Sheridan Urban yes, Forest. Yes, Sheridan Food Forest. Food yeah. Forest. Okay, great. Well, Carol, thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate you taking the time to visit with our guests, our audience, rather. Thanks for having me. <laughs> All right, folks. When we come back, we're going to talk about uh, DC statehood with Tamara Harrison. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is your locally owned source for specialty groceries. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce 
specialty cheeses, and hand-selected wines and craft beer. Visit the Lively Cafe for breakfast, lunch, and dinner seven days a week. Gateway Market is centrally located on the corner of Martin Luther King Jr. Parkway and Woodland Avenue. Stop by or visit www.gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. Across the Des Moines Metro, Ritual Cafe is known for its excellent fair trade coffee and fair trade tea. Ritual Cafe also serves breakfast and lunch and offers an entirely vegetarian menu. This unique venue is also known for its live music and displays of local artwork on the walls. Located on 13th Street between Locust and Grand in downtown Des Moines, Ritual Cafe is open six days a week. Make Ritual Cafe a daily part of your ritual. Noche is the premier home in Des Moines for jazz and cabaret. With its prime downtown location and stylish ambiance, Noche attracts both national acts and local favorites, including Max Wellman, Gina Gedler, Scott Smith, Tina Haas Finley, and Nick Leo. Every Wednesday night, you can enjoy the progressive sounds of one of America's longest-running jazz orchestras, the Des Moines Big Band. Noche also offers a world-class cocktail bar and serves a variety of small plates. If you haven't been to Noche, you haven't experienced the fullness of Des Moines' cultural revival. If you have, we're sure you'll be back. Noche, located on Walnut Street, just south of the Sculpture Park in downtown Des Moines. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Uh, this is Ed Fallon, your host. First, um, I want to take a second to uh, thank uh, a couple of our local business partners. Thanks to uh, Hawk Restaurant at uh, East 5th and Walnut, where 90% of the food served comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. Hawk also has patio seating now, so you can order online, you can do takeout, but you can also come down and enjoy the patio. Uh, thanks also to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been treating all creatures great and small for over 30 years. That's Story County Veterinary Clinic. Later in the program, we'll be talking about some of the crazy developments relevant to the build-out of fossil fuel infrastructure. And we're going to ask the question of why aren't some of these CEOs of these oil companies in prison? We'll also be talking about uh, the garden and some of, the key, some of the questions that people have been throwing our ways, Kathy Burns is going to join us and we'll try to answer some of those questions. So I'd like to welcome uh, Tamara Harrison to the program. Uh, Tamara is the uh, founder and director of Iowans for DC Statehood. Tamara, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me on. So um, just so people know what the deal is, what exactly is it that residents of Washington DC are not allowed to do presently? Well, currently the residents of, of D.C. are not represented in Congress. They do not have a voting uh, member in the House. They do not have a voting senator which or two voting senators, which most states ha which all states are given. Um, and that's something that is, is very important to them and has been for a long time. They've been fighting for decades um, to get statehood and representation. And, and really for them, it's about equal rights. Um, as every other American, it's about self-determination and, and uh, you know, being a part of our nation. And doesn't that also, doesn't the lack of congressional representation also affect, uh, for example, um, funding that comes down based on uh, economic emergencies, for example? Uh, oh, great example. Great example. COVID-19 recently. Yeah. 
Um, all the states got 1.2 million, and they got, I think it was a little over 400 million instead of the 1.2 billion. So apparently the people in DC, even though there's more people there than in two other states that did get $1.2 billion, apparently their lives are worth less to Congress. Yes, I, I do know that's a good point because DC is what, 750,000 people roughly? And, um... uh, well, it's the, right, the last estimate was around 706, but we really do expect a big jump after this next census. Right, okay, and so that's, that's bigger than Vermont, bigger than Wyoming. Uh, mm -hmm. And about the same size as a handful of other states too, North Dakota and Alaska. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, here's what I don't get. Uh, you know, D.C. used to be Maryland and Virginia, and a heck of right. a long time ago, it was carved out. An area was carved out so as not to be part of any state with any uh, allegedly any conflict of interest. And well, why not just apportion D.C. back into those two states? Is that is that not a good idea? Well, I, I try to do this, explain this simply. First of all, in 1846, part of that original land that was cut out from both states, uh, the part that originally belonged to Virginia was given back to Virginia. Um, so now you have, as of 1846, what was the new, uh, the Washington, D.C. we have today. Um, now what they're saying is we need to cut the federal district down again to actually represent, to actually be just the federal district, still under federal control, but shrink it down, and the residential and commercial portions of the area um, that is now part of D.C. would separate and become the state of Washington D.C. Okay, but that that would make more sense than just putting what's left back into Maryland. Well, Maryland doesn't want them. Oh. <laughs> Mar Mar okay. Maryland has said they're not interested in retrocession and. Um, and, you know, isn't it, shouldn't it be up to the 700,000 plus people of D.C. what happens to them? Okay, well, yeah. Um, they've had their own identity, their own area. They've a limited rule because any rule they do make, unfortunately, can be squashed. But, um, you know, they, so they have that right to self-determination, to decide for themselves. And in 2016, 86% of them voted on a measure to become a state. Wow, they, okay. they want statehood. Okay, so uh, look, looking at the broader um, you know, opinion across the country, there was a Gallup poll done last year, 2019, that found that 64% uh, of Americans uh, oppose D.C. state. But I was surprised at that. Well, what's, um, what's going on with that? Well, you know, I think a lot of it, unfortunately, had to do with uh, two things. The wording was very, it said, um, would you be in favor of making uh, Washington, D.C. a separate state? That makes it sound like, okay, it's already part of a state. We're trying to separate it from something else. Or, you know, just the wording itself was, was I thought, poorly done. But at the same time, we did RAGBRAI in 2019. And we talked to so many people. More people than not had no idea about the issue, had a misunderstanding or misconception about the issue. And so then when faced with a question like that, you know, if they don't have all the information or all the facts or don't really understand it, and you word it that way, yeah, they don't want them separate from the United States. Yeah, okay. Now, another argument I've heard against it, and this one kind of astounds me, is that uh, they argue that, uh, and I can't remember where this originated, but it was kind of a bizarre argument that, quote, uh, D.C. is too full of crime, corruption, and dysfunction to be allowed to be a state. Oh, yeah. That was, that was one of the arguments that's come up quite a bit, and I'm thinking, okay, Illinois, 
New York, <laughs> you know, some of these others, get in line behind us because we're all losing our statehood. No, that's not how it should work. It's, who, it, there shouldn't be a litmus test like that. Who, who made that uh, argument? Was. Who made that argument? Um, you know, I can't remember, but if you go back and watch the hearings on C-SPAN from uh, 2019 when they actually did the hearing in the House for the first time in forever, what? Um, that was one of the things that was brought up. And there was a there was an issue going on with uh, one of the electeds within the, the D.C. administration. But, um, you know, again, here's my argument. If, if Congress is the ultimate authority over D.C., and they're complaining that there's corruption and, and <laughs> crime is too horrible in D.C. and all this. Well, then then if you are responsible, do something about it. If you're not, oh. get out of the way and let them fix it. Well, when you think of crime, corruption, and dysfunction in Washington, D.C., you don't think of the people living there. You think of the people sent there as congressmen and senators and lobbyists and whatnot. The, that's, but, where, that's, where, that's where most people think about what we, we think when, the, when it comes to corruption in D.C., <clears> but... Okay. Absolutely. And, and that's one of the things most people think, too, is that it's all lobbyists and politicians. Well, hey, they can go home and vote. Yeah. We're talking about the people that live there. So is, is, is a lot of the opposition, let's just cut to the chase, is a lot of the opposition based on race? That, 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 that a lot of folks in power on the political right simply don't want to franchise um, more people of color? I mean, I'm just cutting to the chase. My, that's my impression as to what some of this might be all about. <laughs> I will tell you that, that there's there's two base possibilities in there that come up a lot, race and party. Mm. Um, the fact that there's over 300,000 African-Americans that we're talking about that are disenfranchised in, in D.C., um, but also the fact that they lean Democratic. Those are probably the biggest pushback we get um, from people. And I think the underlying reasons when they throw out all these other reasons, if you really get them to talk, it'll ultimately come back to, you know, something that unfortunate. But I'm trying not to focus on those things. I'm trying to, in fact, we're, we're a 501c3. So we actively pursue people no matter what party. We talk to everybody. And in fact, we have uh, Republicans who have signed our petition um, and independents. Um, and there haven't been Republicans that have signed on to support DC statehood in decades. Mm. So, you know, I think that that's important and something I've really tried to focus on is not, um, trying to get bogged down in those arguments. If, if people are just worried about their party's power, um, or losing that on some level, or they have some other discriminatory reason for, for wanting to keep it from happening, I'm probably not going to change their mind. I'm moving yeah. on to the next person and having those conversations with as many as I can. Well, it is really clearly unjust that there's a segment of the American population that don't have the same opportunity as everyone else. I mean, it's hard to, it's hard to argue that there's anything fair or correct about that. So it seems to me like it's a matter of time. And I mean, things change so slowly everywhere in human society, but it seems like, especially in America, things change really, really slowly. But it seems yep. like, despite that Gallup poll last year, and I concur, it looks like the question was really off. But despite, you know, you know, despite the, as, as long as this has been, this fight has been engaged, it seems like, you know, the eventual momentum is on your side. That this, something has got to happen that's got to break this logjam, that's going to allow for these folks, the 705 or 6,000 people, to have the same right as everyone else. Yeah, and you know what? I think for the first time in a long time, um, everybody, you know, because I work closely with a lot of the organizations out of D.C. They've been great mentors and help and, and stuff as we've been uh, developing out here. 
And um, I think that's something that we're all feeling and, and seeing now is that not only is there momentum, um, if you'd have asked me a year ago, I would have thought we were at least four or five years away from a, a plausible and realistic path to get there. I think there's one next year. Wow. Okay. Well, um, yeah, we'll see what the, I will hold you to that prediction. <laughs> so there's a, there's a couple of bigger issues related to this too. And one is the, um, electoral college. Now, I, this probably doesn't tie in with that at all, but, but certainly, um, abolishing the electoral college, that, that, um, that, um, that electoral reform has also been building some momentum. Do you see that? Does that connect at all with the issue of DC statehood? I think that if somebody was, you know, again, looking at it from a partisan issue, a partisan stance, um, they could argue that, you know, because it's a small area with a, such a significant number of people, it would have greater impact than it would with just their three electoral votes that they'd have, that they have now. Um, so that could, could, I can see where that would concern them if, if things were to go that direction. I don't know that I see that happening, but I certainly see that as a, as something that could concern, you know, some folks. Yeah. So, hey, uh, one last question, Tamara. So, um, if we push for D.C. statehood, which, again, I concur is, is the right thing to do, shouldn't we also be pushing for statehood and equality of participation in the voting system for residents of Puerto Rico, Guam, Absolutely. Samoa? Absolutely. And, and as soon as we get D.C., I will be all about helping to make that happen. Okay, because that's, uh, I mean, I mean, Puerto Rico is a fairly sizable uh, population. I think they're... Oh, absolutely. They're, um, they're, they're big, bigger than Iowa, I think. <laughs> yeah, oh, but they're like, yeah, they're they're a little bit bigger than us. But, you know, if we can't, if we can't even get this done for the people that live within our borders, um, if we don't have, as the beacon of democracy around the world, this, this, this really bothers me that we're so hypocritical yeah. and the only nation, um, you know, the... Uh, trying to think of the right word and I'm sorry it's it's leaving me at the moment but in my article I think I mentioned this but you know we're, we're one of the only major nations in the world that don't allow their capital citizens yeah. uh, to participate in the democracy yeah. and that, we're, we're, that's wrong yeah and then again you know we, we allow one island nation <laughs> Hawaii to have uh, equal voting rights but not Puerto Rico not yeah, one and not there's other. other you know I think I think all of our um, you know, the Virgin Islands and, you know, um, they, they, they should all have um, an, a, a represent, representation within the Congress and voting rights if, you know, or cut them loose. Yeah. I mean, they, they are either a part of us or they're not. Yeah. Um, and I think they deserve all the same rights. I absolutely do. Right now, my focus is D.C., right. but that's something that I feel strongly about as well and, and I'm willing to fight for and continue to fight for. Well, I can tell you feel strongly about it. Again, you founded and you're the director of Iowans for D.C. statehood. That's a that's a big commitment, and I imagine you have you have um, uh, your equivalents in other states as well. I imagine there are most other states, or maybe hopefully a lot of other states, have a similar initiative. Surprisingly, no. We were the first state ever in 2015 to have one. Wow. Nevada Nevada organized one in 2016, but they really haven't. Uh, it didn't, you know. Uh, come together really they kind of fizzled out um, I don't know if they're they're trying to get that going again but um, DC vote out of uh, Washington DC one of my great mentors friends Bosha and Barbie Helmick um, they're trying to identify people in other states 
um, that are willing to be a part of this program they put together, and, and we're going to help them do that um, any way we can okay. to identify people to try to get organizations like us here in Iowa in any other state um, that would be willing to do that. Because I think it, once the people outside of D.C. are saying, hey, wait a minute, this is not right, right. then it's not just the D.C. people want, you know, saying, right. hey, we, we, we want this. Other people are standing up for them, and that's when we've started to see change. Well, thanks for joining us, Tamara. If, uh, if folks want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? Uh, Tamara, T-A-M-Y-R-A, at iowansfordcstatehood.com. T-A-M-Y-R-A at iowansfordcstatehood.com. Tamara, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Folks, when we come back, uh, we're going to talk about um, the fact that in a just nation, fossil fuel executives would probably be in prison because there's some big news happening on the expansion of pipeline fronts. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. When it's time to entertain, think of Gateway Market to handle all the details. Gateway offers a wide variety of stress-free options like cut-to-order cheese and charcuterie, a delicious olive bar, and a wide variety of chef-prepared dips and spreads. Or let Gateway's catering team take care of the entire event, right down to the wine and beer pairings. Gateway's expert floral designers can even customize the perfect centerpieces. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more information. Gateway Market, good food, great entertaining. Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant. Well, maybe not an elephant. If you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's work history is long and deep and her clients stick with her year after year because they know she will do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Dr. Holding a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon with you folks, broadcasting from Des Moines, Iowa, the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. So a quick shout out to a couple of our nonprofit partners. Thanks to Bold Iowa, fighting climate change and the Dakota Access Pipeline since 2015. Check out boldiowa.com. Thanks also to Birds and Bees Urban Farm. Learn how to turn your yard into dinner. Check out birdsbeesurbanfarm.org. Welcome back to the program. And again, Ed Fallon with you here, folks. Uh, later in the show, Kathy Burns will be joining me as we talk about urban farming, gardening, and specifically we're going to be answering your tough questions. For example, what do I do with all this garlic and how do I kill these beetles? We'll be dealing with that later in the last segment, but right now I want to, it's been a really, really big couple of weeks when it comes to fossil fuel infrastructure. So last week, uh, a federal judge ordered that the Dakota Access Pipeline must shut down by August 5th shut down and drain be, be drained of oil that's a big deal you know never before has a pipeline that's been running oil one that's been in existence in this case since 2017 never has a pipeline been ordered to shut down forced to close and then again the reason was of course because the uh, the army corps of engineers did not do an adequate environmental assessment of the impact that this pipeline would have on specifically on the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe. 
although it certainly affects all of us. It affects Iowa and our, our, our water, our land, our property rights here in Iowa, and it certainly affects uh, climate change. So, you know, we'll see what happens with that. Right now, the, um, the uh, <laughs> energy transfer is, of course, saying, yeah, we're not going to do that. Because, you know, these folks have become so cocky and so arrogant and so full of their richness that they don't even, they think nothing of just openly defying, uh, you know, the, a court order. And of course, they've, you know, they, they backed off a little bit once they said that. But, you know, we know where they really stand. They really don't think they need, they don't think they need to do this. They think they're above the law. But it wasn't just the Dakota Access Pipeline. This month has been a, a crazy month on, on, this, on this front. Dominion Energy, that's one of two companies behind the Atlantic Coastal pipeline, that's a gas pipeline, suddenly, well, it was, it was a surprise to, to many people, they announced that they were abandoning plans to build the Atlantic Coastal Pipeline. So one publication I checked out with um, detail about this, uh, Mercury, or Virginia Mercury, rather, and I quote, Dominion attributed the pipeline's demise to ongoing delays and increasing cost uncertainty, which threatened the economic viability of the project. In particular, the utility pointed a finger at a string of legal challenges to federal and state permits the pipeline had received and then subsequently saw yanked. The delays had been extremely costly since the initial 4.5 to 5 billion estimate. The price tag has risen to 8 billion. That's from a local paper that in a community that would have been affected very directly by the Atlantic Coastal Pipeline. So also last week, <laughs> The U.S. Supreme Court, um, okay, this was a mixed bag. They cleared the way for several pipeline projects to go ahead with this uh, fast-track permitting process they've set up. But left out of that ruling was the Keystone XL pipeline. And that, I mean, the, the, Keystone, XL, XL, the Keystone XL pipeline has already been delayed time and time again. And... Uh, this is just going to make it delayed even more. Uh, I'm fine with that. <laughs> you know, you know where I stand. So um, we'll see what happens. I, I, I and I say that ruling was a mixed bag because the Supreme Court basically reversed a lower court ruling that said that um, all pipeline projects uh, needed to, if, if they crossed a body of water, they needed to go through a full environmental review. So uh, again, we don't expect great things from our U.S. Supreme Court although it's been an interesting couple of weeks on that front as well. So, um, yeah, uh, you know, for these and other reasons, um, a lot of these companies are likely to go bankrupt. In fact, some have already declared bankruptcy. Uh, and they, they blame it not just on us crazy environmentalists. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it, there's a whole bunch of reasons why they're going bankrupt. Uh, part of it is the climate chickens are coming home to roost it's more and more evident that what we're doing is destroying the prospects for future human life on this planet. And so um, the, the economics of, of, of increased fossil fuel production are coming into question. So uh, I don't always say this, but there was a really good New York Times story <laughs> on this subject uh, just this week uh, called Fracking Firms Fail yeah, I'm a sucker for alliteration. Fracking firms fail, rewarding executives and raising climate fears by Hiroko Tabuchi. Uh, she's an investigative reporter with the Times. So um, 
That story pointed out that these um, pending bankruptcies are raising fears that uh, that these uh, gas uh, gas wells uh, that they're going to be continuing to leak uh, carbon and methane in particular, uh, and of course the eventual cleanup of those sites is going to be borne by the U.S. government, aka the taxpayers. And, and you know. When Dakota Access came through Iowa, we argued that this is not a responsible corporation. You know, one example, one, one indicator of that was uh, they wanted liability to the tune of what? A quarter of a million dollars? That's a joke. That's an absolute joke. Now, we pushed really, really hard. Um, when I say we, I mean the landowners, the environmentalists, the farmers, the native people involved. We pushed really hard and convinced the utility board to require $50 million. Uh, so that's that's a big change. It's still a drop in the bucket when you consider what some of these cleanup costs are going to involve. So um, again, the problem is that these 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 wells, the the, the tanks at the uh, gas wells, are leaking methane like you wouldn't believe. And there there are ways of um, documenting that with infrared uh, photography, and they're, they're leaking methane now. Methane, you know, we always talk about carbon emissions, but methane is 80 times as damaging to the atmosphere as carbon. And you can't see it, you can't smell it. And, and it's, um, it's, it's, being, it's being thrown into the atmosphere at incredible rates, uh, even without being burned, just, just, just escaping from these facilities. They estimate that, uh, that there are what, uh, I, I want to say, um, the two-thirds of all the uh, gas wells in the U.S. are actually leaking. I mean, that's crazy. That that much is that that much is getting away and into the atmosphere. Um, <laughs> so, you know, there, there's so there's so much wrong with this picture, right? Here's the other thing. Although, again, according to the New York Times story, quote: In the months before. Um, MDC's bankruptcy. MDC is the uh, MDC Energy is a Texas company that filed for bankruptcy um, late last year, I believe, and that was you know the same day that that bankruptcy was filed, it was discovered that the, the one of their tanks was just like methane, just pouring out of it, pouring out of it, you know, and the conservative estimate was that it would cost forty million bucks to clean up and close those wells. Okay, so, you know, and that money, of course, is, um, you know, the, the MDC can't afford it now because they're in bankruptcy. They're, they're leaking money as fast as they're leaking methane. And so the, um, you know, the taxpayers are going to get stuck with it. But, um, <laughs> so this is where you really ought to be getting mad. Uh, in the months before MDC filed bankruptcy, MDC paid its chief executive 8.5 million in consulting fees. So, you know, they know they're going to go bankrupt. They know they're going to file for it. And just before they do, they throw this guy 8.5 million. And yet they don't have enough money to deal with the cleanup. They have no intention of dealing with the cleanup. You know, it's not just MDC, okay? Whiting Petroleum, that's one of the bigger um, shale companies in uh, North Dakota. They were uh, looking for bankruptcy protection uh, earlier this year, just a couple months ago, in fact. Um, and just before they did that, 
they supported uh, they, I, I don't know whether I think it was their shareholder somebody somebody with authority authorized a 15 million dollar cash bonus for its top executives less than a week before they filed for bankruptcy what's wrong with this picture I mean I don't know how these people can get a, how can, how come they're not in prison okay so it gets worse Chesapeake Energy also uh, you know also involved with shale uh, exploration gas exploration they declared bankruptcy just last in, in June and and no surprise you, you you see the pattern here right a few weeks before that they paid 25 million in bonuses to a handful of executives how are they getting away with this? How are they getting away with this? Okay, just just not to let you down, it gets worse. <laughs> so, you know, these crooks are also taking COVID-19 stimulus money. And I know there's been some discussion about that. Specifically, here's an example, Diamond Offshore Drilling. They were able to land a $9.7 million tax refund under the COVID stimulus bill. And then what happened? Oh. And then they filed to reorganize the bankruptcy court the next month. <laughs> they get the handout and then they declare bankruptcy. It, it just it is enough to make you want to scream or pull out your hair. That's one reason I don't have hair, folks. I get so upset at this stuff. I keep pulling it out and it's finally gone. So uh, <laughs> now, now you would think maybe the spin doctors at these companies would at least try to offer some explanation, uh, some some gloss as to why these ex executives deserve these big bonuses and why it was okay for us to take this COVID-19 stimulus money. They aren't even going there. They aren't even going there. Uh, the Times reporter tried to repeatedly contact MDC CEO, the guy who got the uh, 8.5 million bonus, Mark's, uh, Mark Siffen. No response. Repeatedly, no response. Same with Whiting, Whiting Petroleum, Diamond Offshore, Chesapeake Energy. Also, declining to comment. <laughs> they have no argument. They have no defense. There's nothing they could say that would convince anybody that they're not just a bunch of crooks. Okay, so, it's, and again, it's going to get worse because there's an estimate that, it's estimated that nearly 250 oil and gas companies could file for bankruptcy by the end of 2021. Within the next year and a little more, another 250 companies could be pulling these kind of shenanigans. You know, I, I think that we're looking at Big Oil's dying breath. And I thought this even when, even when the Dakota Access Pipeline was being constructed. This was their last big hurrah. They were able to get the U.S. to be the biggest oil producer and now the biggest oil exporter in the world. And okay, the fact that it's their last hurrah is good news. But the bad news is the environmental consequences of the industry's collapse are almost unimaginable. You know, and again, because the industry and its pals in high places, and not just Donald Trump, there's lots of Republican senators and Congress critters and folks at the legislative level who um, are just there to, you know, they get that handout, they get that donation, they get that, they get that pat on the back, they get to go to that special golf tournament, and they're there to do what those CEOs and their minions want. And it's not just Republicans, there's some Democrats as well that are just as beholden to big oil. So the collapse is inevitable. It's going to be unimaginable. And hang on to your, um, hang on to your wallet, folks, because we're going to be the ones expected to pay the tab. We need to be prepared for that and to fight that.
anyway, it's um, it's scandalous. It's um, it's deeply upsetting. And the other side of this is, I mean, this economic environmental justice is such a huge part of this because a lot of these facilities that are polluting the earth, that are poisoning the air, poisoning the water, they're located in communities of color, um, communities of poor people, uh, in New Mexico, in Texas. There's a story about um about a, a, a facility in Colorado. It's a, just, it's just, um, you know, they originally, they originally planned to build this um, gas well, these gas wells, um, near uh, a more affluent, a majority white charter school. But they were forced to move, forced. They chose to move because the wealthy parents in that community got really angry and they made a lot of noise. And they vote and they had money. And so they moved the, uh, this is near Greeley, Colorado, they moved the gas wells to a poor area. Surprise, surprise. Same in North Dakota. Uh, you know, so we ought to be united. Uh, I mean, I don't care where you are at on the political spectrum. None of this is good for you. Unless you're one of these executives or somebody connected to them, beholden to them, this is not good. You know, and it's not good for the workers either. Start looking at what's happening. I mean, a lot of workers who've been affected by by this stuff. Um, by well, here's an example in eastern Texas, east central Texas, Chesapeake Energy. Um, they were le leaking natural gas uh, uh, wells. They, they 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 lit on fire. Three workers died. Another worker was um, you know he had catastrophic and permanent injuries. And so where's that lawsuit? Well. You know, now the uh, company said that those lawsuits should be put on hold while they're dealing with bankruptcy. So to heck with those workers and those families. And that's just one example. So again, not good for the workers, not good for the communities, not good for the uh, land, the water, the climate. Only good for the CEOs of these companies who deserve to, to be held accountable or need to be held accountable. And in my opinion, ought to go to prison. Folks, uh, this is Ed Fallon, your host. And we'll be back in a minute to talk about something a little bit warmer and fuzzier. Uh, maybe too fuzzy at sometimes if you're dealing with pottery mildew. We're going to talk about vegetable gardening and answer some questions that we get all the time uh, with uh, our work here at Birds and Bees Urban Farm. Gateway Marketing Cafe is your locally owned source for specialty groceries. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, specialty cheeses, and hand-selected wines and craft beer. Visit the Lively Cafe for breakfast, lunch, and dinner seven days a week. Gateway Market is centrally located on the corner of Martin Luther King Jr. Parkway and Woodland Avenue. Stop by or visit www.gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food. Great community. It's important to know where your food comes from. At Hawk Restaurant, that's easy because 90% comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. Located at East 5th and Walnut Street, Hawk is open for lunch and supper Monday through Saturday. From May through October, you'll also find Hawk at the Downtown Farmer's Market serving fantastic breakfast wraps with 100% of the ingredients from Iowa, except for the salt and pepper. Learn more at hawktable.com. That's H-O-Q-Table.com. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon, your host here. 
thanks again to our local business partners for making this program possible. Thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe, that's my grocery store. And they're not open in the dining room, but you can order breakfast, lunch, and supper seven days a week. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Thanks also to Ritual Cafe, Fair Trade Coffee, Fair Trade Tea, and an all-vegetarian menu. Again, dining room closed, you can order takeout from Ritual Cafe. Thanks for tuning in today's program, folks. Uh, with me for the final segment of our conversation, Kathy Burns with Birds and Bees Urban Farm. We get lots of questions, and we see lots of questions out there online, and here we are to answer every one of them to the best of our ability. Well, <laughs> to the best of our ability is a good good uh, little disclaimer there. But, uh, you know, we, we are always learning, and we're always happy to share what we learn with other people. Some of the questions, uh, you know, we, we don't even know the answer to sometimes, but a lot of them we do. So uh, here's a question that we saw pretty recently on one of the uh, forums that we participate in. Anyone else allergic to vegetable gardening? I love to harvest, but then my arms are on fire and itchy for hours. And uh, I'll go ahead and field that one because yeah. my answer is yes. My answer is no. <laughs> so go for it. I never thought of it as an allergy. Um but maybe it is uh, green beans, zucchini, anything that I'm working in, with my arms in the leaves or my legs in the leaves, and I'm getting, you know, brushing up against those leaves a lot. When I come in, I have to wash with soap and rinse well. Otherwise, I get lots of prickly feeling on my arms and legs. I never wash with soap. Once a month, maybe. <laughs> You watch. That's not true. <laughs> no, it's not true. That's not true. Okay, so you're not the only one, I guess. I'm not the only well, one. Right, so good. you know, I didn't know it was anybody else. But it's just a simple solution. Just clean up afterwards, and you should be fine. Right. All right. Right. Um, here's here's one that um, we do know the answer to very well. Is it time to harvest garlic, and what's the best way to do that? We just did it this weekend. Yeah, and the best way to do that? Well, we've uh, you we, you published a video this uh, this last weekend. On the Birds and Bees Urban Farm YouTube yeah. page, so check that out. It's also on our Facebook page. Birdsbeesurbanfarm.org. Yeah, so basically you want to make sure you have, what, three-fifths of the leaves should be brown? Mm -hmm. So, you know. Um, Dig so gently. Slightly more than half the leaves are brown. And yes. then you, people sometimes think you just pull garlic like you do an onion. Can't do it. Well, unless something's wrong, you, you should be able you should have to dig it mm -hmm. and then brush it gently. Well, yeah. one of the tricks, though, if you haven't already done it, is to stop watering it. How mm. long before you plan to harvest do you think it's about ready? So that the dirt is nice and um, uh, dry so it will yeah. come off easily. Well, last few weeks or so, yeah. Mm -hmm. But then, uh, again, it's, it, what we, we do is um, we braid them. And uh, no, I will not braid your hair if you want me to do that for you. You would not want me to braid your hair. But I can braid a mean onion or garlic. Garlic's tough because it's uh, it's so stiff. It's harder to work with. But you can braid it. It dries out. You want to hang it somewhere um, airy mm -hmm. but not sunny where it doesn't get rained on. And, you know, that's a, that, that's a bit of a challenge. We found the perfect place, our balcony. So we sit up on our balcony in our rocking chairs every morning, sometimes in the evening. And now We're we have not all, old. We're now, not we, old. now we have all this, all this garlic hanging around us. It's, it's like these little garlic mobiles, you know. It makes us hungry for lunch at breakfast time. <laughs> and it makes our entire, the, wake, the, the, the start of our day now smells like garlic yeah. <laughs> for the uh -huh. next two weeks. For us, that's wonderful. Um, when do you sow fall crops and what are the best plants to grow? The answer is you start now, you start to plan for them. In last week's uh, 
segment we did not two weeks ago we did a segment on fall planting uh, on the Fallon form so you can check that out but uh, August 1st is typically the time to start planting your fall crops and best plants to grow oh golly there's a lot to pick long from. list mm -hmm. um, beans turnips carrots green beans green beans yeah. yes green beans turnips carrots um, beets, beets lettuce uh, radishes spinach Broccoli, maybe cauliflower. Maybe <laughs> we've we've never had any luck with broccoli or cauliflower, but we're going to try again this year. Check the yeah. Fallon Form video that we posted two weeks ago, where we go into detail. But hey, do do not underestimate a fall garden. Fall garden is so good. Mm -hmm. I mean, you get stuff that you. It, the only again, the only way you can get a lettuce with your BLT is in the fall. That's right. <laughs> the tomatoes aren't ready in the spring. Here's uh, here's a good one. How many people prune the suckers out of their tomatoes? Pros and cons, please. Well, the suckers are. It's that middle, that middle uh, branch that comes up between the main, the main berry. stem and then the leaf. It's where your, it's your additional fruiting branch. Mm -hmm. You want me to answer that? Yes. Please. Okay. Well, <laughs> I will do different you have things. Strong for, opinions. Well, I, well I, if I'm growing the tomato in a cage, I'm not as concerned about those suckers. They'll just kind of take off and do their own thing. And remember, each one is its own fruiting stock. You know, I mean, pruning them out will give more strength mm -hmm. and vigor to your main stock. Mm -hmm. And I, I like to do that if we, for the tomatoes who are growing on stakes, where they've just got one, you know, linear passage for growth. That's that's where I like to take out the suckers. So they don't put too much stress on the plant as a whole. Well, or on the stake, <laughs> or, or go off in too many directions. With right. a cage, with a big enough cage, again, when I say cage, I mean one that's four or five feet tall. You want a big cage. You don't want those little tiny ones? No. But a big cage, yeah, I, I leave the suckers on. Um, and I, says pros and cons. I think one of the cons of leading, leaving all the suckers on is that you can crowd out inside that tomato cage and make it so that your fruits don't get quite the air and light that they might want. And it's also kind of hard to get your hand in there and harvest sometimes. So, yeah. uh, you know, make as long as your plants are getting air and light throughout the whole fruiting space, I think you're good. But, you know, some people just like the look of it better. Yeah. Um, what would you do if you are starting a garden and all the neighbors around you spray their lawns? Um, well, what kind of relationship do you have with your neighbors? I hope it's a good one, and that's worth a conversation. We have a neighbor here. It's an apartment complex, and we had a nice conversation with them about spraying the fence to the north of us, against which, on our side, we keep bees. Vegetables and bees. Vegetables yeah. and bees. And mm -hmm. they kindly agreed not to spray, and we kindly agreed to keep tabs on the weeds that might grow over there. Yeah, and they let us put up no spray signs. So, you know, not all neighbors are going to be good neighbors, um, but uh, it's worth talking to them because you really, yeah, yeah, I understand you don't want a lot of chemical drift under your crops. Regarding squash, is anyone else getting lots of blooms on their plants but no veggies? I can't figure out if it's because of a low number of pollinators or something else is going on. Well, this is a natural way that squash grows. Uh, do you want to elaborate? Well, you mean you've got blossoms. Uh, you've got male and female blossoms. And as with the human species, the males are pretty much unproductive. Uh, <laughs> did I say that? Um, they help. <laughs> well, we help. We, ha we have our role to play. Yes. At least we don't get our heads bitten off uh, like praying mantises do. <laughs> or other, <laughs> some of the other insect kingdom males don't fare very well. But no, they, they have their purpose. But again, you, don't, you shouldn't expect a, a fruit from every blossom. 
Mm-mm. Um, but you should expect a bee or two or three in every blossom. Yes. Um, I did get to talk to my granddaughters. We were checking the squash at their house for squash bugs, which is the next question. And we saw deep in one of the squash blossoms a bee. And I talked about the, the bee in there getting the boy part of the plant on, on it and then taking it to the girl part of the plant. And then they can make a fruit. I didn't go into any more detail. <laughs> I was really good about it. Um, squash bugs. That's... Uh, somebody says they're trying to scrape them off, but if they miss so, any, they... Well, oh, to be yes. clear, it's eggs. The, Squash the, bug eggs. Yeah, the best. Yeah, yeah. look oh. look for the eggs. There's a little cluster of red. Looks like miniature caviar. It looks like copper, little copper beads yeah, to yeah. me. But but, uh, but ideally you'll find you'll find the squash bug problem before you find the bugs. Yes, yes, and yes, scrape them off. Um, take a butter knife and scrape them off uh, right against the leaf. They're on the backs of the leaves usually. And they like to hide between the the kind of main veins of the leaves. So they're hard to see. But if you can't scrape them off, cut that part of the leaf out. Mm -hmm. And if you find that they've already hatched and it's just crawling with little uh, bugglings. Bugglings. Then then just cut the leaf off and get rid of that whole leaf. Um, I've already seen adult squash bugs on well, the plants and then juveniles had, right no adult. i've adults? seen the adults oh, okay. as big right. as the tip of my pinky oh wow okay already on there and they they've um they've not met a, a kind fate <laughs> good <laughs> <laughs> um one more question why are my tomatoes rotting on the end well that's um blossom end rot we've had a lot of questions about that and people are very distressed to see that rightfully distressed but it's a fungal problem um it's largely due to, usually due to um, irregular watering, and the best way to cure that is to begin watering regularly. And that's hard to measure sometimes because you've got rain. How much rain did you get? Maybe you don't know. So it's just um, we haven't had we had we had one out of all of our tomato plants. We had one tomato with blossom and rot. But the nice thing, the other nice thing about it is it tends to go away as mm. the crop matures. Mm. Your next you know, you know, the next fruits to come on are less inclined to have that problem. Uh, at Birds and Bees Urban Farm, we're helping other people turn their yards into dinner. And all of these questions are really good ones. Um, get in touch with us if, if you have a question. You can find our contact on birdsbeesurbanfarm.org. And if we don't know the answer, we'll just make something up. <laughs> and it'll be interesting. <laughs> For example, what do I do when a giant squirrel eats all of my tomatoes? Oh, that was... Well, you negotiate we that with that squirrel. With you, you sit down with that squirrel and you have a heart-to-heart conversation about, about how, you know, how you can both meet your needs. That was about your neighbor's spraying. That's not oh, about okay, squirrels. Right. <laughs> it works with neighbors maybe, but not with squirrels. Yeah. Hey, thanks for tuning in today, folks. Uh, this has been Ed Fallon, your host on the Fallon Forum. Kathy Burns, my guest here. Again, thanks to the stations in Iowa and around the country that rebroadcast this program. You can also check it out on our website, FallonForum.com, and subscribe on Stitcher and Apple Podcasts. Again, thanks for tuning in.